Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Pulp Art Expert, David Saunders, discusses the artists of the Argosy, 120 years of sensational pulp artists. David is the son of pulp artist, Norman Saunders, and he also runs the website. Field Guide to Wild American Pulp Artists. The presentation featured numerous examples of covers from Argosy Magazine. Visit the Pulp Event Podcast page at the PulpNet for a link to a gallery of covers. The talk was recorded on July 22, 2016, at Pulp Fest 2016 in Columbus, Ohio. Okay, welcome, welcome. No time for an introduction because that's all blown. I am someone who's going to be talking about the artists who make Argosy. So this is Argosy. This is the uh, 40th anniversary number, 1922. And uh, 40 years earlier, this guy with $40 worked for 40 years and made $40 million. And so in 1922, when that 40th anniversary issue came out, Frank Muncy um, was interviewed and said, 40 years, no, $40, 40 years, 40 million. So that's like the Horatio Alger success story in a sense. And a great deal of his um, uh, popularity was based on things like the Horatio Alger success story, which was the sort of uh, literature that was popular at the time. And what he had actually done, which is so unique, is that uh, um, he was a brilliant guy and had his heart in the right place and everything. And uh, he understood uh, telegraphy and modern um, newspaper printing advances and the whole industrial revolution of what was going on. At that particular time in like 1882, uh, the industry of publishing in America was in almost entirely geared to the readers. And the readers at that time were only 3% of the population for the very most upper class people. And books were pr printed by hand and bound by hand and sold for like $100, which would be a farmer's almost a year's income. So he had the idea, along with the power of the developments of the Industrial Revolution, to make a, um, something like a newspaper, but was also a book. So he came up with the idea of this uh, fiction for the working class, so to speak, which was a five cent uh, magazine uh, called The Golden Argosy. And uh, he uh, um, became extremely wealthy and successful with this thing. And this is a cartoon that was out, again, uh, at the time of the 40th anniversary by the cartoonist uh, Percy C C Crosby, who did Skipper, the um, Skippy, the uh, newspaper uh, comic strip. And this shows all the New York newspapers before they go to bed with hair-raising fear, talking about uh, if they're not good, uh, Muncie will come get them. And that's Muncie right there with his top hat looking in the window. So uh, he made the Golden Argosy. And uh, at first, the artists that he used, uh, he, he used printing presses that were doing newspapers. And he had the idea to use the sort of binding machinery which newspapers use, which wasn't anything. And so they were often just folded. They were sort of like a, um, 
a Sunday supplement, basically. But it was fiction that was not geared for um, uh, the 3% of the United States. So it was actually simple phrases and simple, because in fact, most people in the United States, 97%, never got more than an eighth grade education at that time. There was not widespread public schools in the, in the United States at all. So these were um, simple um, adventure stories. And the, the name, the Argosy itself, is just based on a, uh, in 1860, there was a popular literary magazine in London called the Argosy. And that lasted until uh, the middle of the 20th, 20th century also. And that's no connection whatsoever, but, it, but that was the concept of these great adventure stories, which, you know, of course, are based on the Argosy, the voyage of Jason and the Argonauts on the boat, the Argo, going to get the Golden Fleece with a, a, a band of, uh, of uh, mythological heroes. So that sort of uh, exciting adventure story going to other countries and maybe even with, uh, you know, things that are fantasy related occurring uh, is the basis of great storytelling and the basis of the Argosy. So the first issues of the Argosy used um, authors and um, artists that were working in the newspapers. And uh, so it was very much a part of the history of American uh, newspaper uh, industry or, or culture, language. So these artists are, uh, you can see like on the cover, there's text down here and stuff. And this isn't really this typical pulp cover that we think of where it's a, a giant poster of something. This is just simply the front illustration of, of a book or a, um, of a, a newspaper article. And you know, of course, the newspapers did include fiction in them too. So they would have like three, two or three pages once a week that would just have fiction stories. So these were um, pen and ink artists. So uh, here's 1896 with the Argosy. And uh, this time it has an actual wraparound, a brown paper, which was separate, heavier, heavier uh, paper than the inside. And uh, it's an actual magazine at this point. And at that same month, he also brought out Muncie, which became Muncie's. And unlike the other one being geared towards um, children and uh, adventure stories for boys, this one is more like working class women and adventure stories and love stories. So he was actually responding to his audience quite a bit um, and was earnestly entertaining people and, but also trying to take advantage of um, the things that the Industrial Revolution provided with him. So this is a, a, a two-tone cover and it's a, just a graphic design by an anonymous artist. He's at the same time buying all of these newspapers. He eventually owned uh, 17 newspapers in the United States and uh, in Washington, Baltimore, uh, Philadelphia, Boston. But he, he, he owned two or three in New York. And he began to realize that he could probably be more efficient if he were to um, use all the same paper supplier and the same distributor. So that's why he began to buy newspapers and buy other magazines and make recombined magazines because it was all like a business efficiency thing. And uh, it, he was, you know, born in Maine and uh, New England and had lived his whole life. It's kind of like the typical um, practical, um, what's that, Yankee ingenuity. This is the first cover that they ever had with a wraparound with an artist. It's unsigned, but uh, I guess my guess is that it's by an artist named Gordon Grant. 
And this is October 1905. This is uh, uh, another early cover, and the artist is uh, Thomas Victor Hall. And he continued to work up until the Second World War for Muncie. This is the first artist uh, we're going to look at a little more in depth. It's Clinton Peaty. And uh, it's, it's, we always think about him in terms of the Argosy early artist because uh, he just did so much great work. Now this, you can see it's, 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 goes, it's a full bleed, so to speak. It goes to all sides, to the top and the bottom. So it's an entire picture of something, not with a frame around it. And uh, you know, it's, a, it's a great typical adventure story. But you'll see like the, the swoop of the, of the thing here and the, all the movement of this and that. It's like he's created like a beautiful big um, composition rather than just you know, a little frozen um, scene. So he, he's, he's really great at these adventure stories. And um, he's wearing a uniform in this picture. And he actually uh, was born in New York City and um, went to the Art Students League. And, uh, but in uh, 1898, he um, was in the Spanish-American War. And when he came back, um, he was in a, a photo play. And it's, it's an actual thing that existed before uh, movies, because it was uh, you know, 1899 or something, 1900. And they, would, they wrote a popular play. They would read the play out loud. And they would have an orchestra playing. And they would broadcast, just like we're doing, not broadcast, they would project, just like we're doing tonight, photographs of scenes. And this was before motion pictures. And so this is actually a scene of Clinton Peaty that was um, in a photo play about the, the war in Cuba. And his, we're, we remember him today because he produced this incredible cover that everyone is, is often considered one of the most valuable covers of August, I mean, October 1912. And here's another artist that I like a lot from the early years, Fred W. Small. And you can see that these are like a colorful scene. And uh, it's not necessarily super realistic looking. It's more of a, a poster design kind of thing. And so he was actually working in a style that's kind of uh, French. And um, um, it would be like a poster for a, a stage play or even a, a woman's clothing or something. So this is a, a very stylistic design. He, he also worked uh, for Muncie as a newspaper illustrator and uh, was a pen and ink artist for Muncie. And um, he uh, was not working freelance. He was actually on the staff and got like a, uh, an annual salary. So whether he was doing an interior drawing or um, doing these covers uh, would be all the same for his paycheck. It wouldn't matter at all. And again, it was just an efficiency thing. And uh, Muncie felt that it was a, a, a bargain for himself, but also an opportunity for uh, artists to express themselves. So in a way, the idea of communicating to the working class uh, affordable fiction for five cents, or also getting artists that would not otherwise have opportunities to even do their work, uh, there's some kind of a reciprocal thing uh, that it's kind of nice, I think, that Muncie was playing a, a force in the American art scene in a way by um, having these guys produce this kind of work. There was widely distributed and yet they, they were not, um, you know, you would have to be a very celebrated person to have, you know, 100,000 copies of your 
poster design printed and distributed across the country, and yet this guy was doing it for a weekly salary. So it's, it's an interesting thing, but I think that's a really lovely cover. And again, it, it, it's not realistic necessarily, but it's just so beautifully designed and with, with very strange and uh, exotic color, cover, colors. It's not just primary colors and stuff. He worked up until this year with Muncie in 22, and then he went to Hollywood and became a, uh, the top um, movie poster artist for Paramount, and also worked with Columbia Pictures up until the Second World War. Here's another artist I just love, is uh, P.J. Monahan. And you can see this early uh, illustration is just full of drama. And his, his way of um, conveying stuff is almost expressionistic. So it's very uh, powerful lines that are almost seem to exist for their own sake, rather than just describing something. It's not entirely descriptive lines, like that uh, Martian lion type creature. Just looks like a bunch of zigzagged things, you know. And this is a, just a great image. One of the amazing things about him as a person, it's again, it, it appeals to me because it's the story of America, but uh, he was Irish and he was born in um, Des Moines, Iowa, and uh, his entire family was wiped out by influenza when he was three years old. Uh, so uh, there were like eight children, a mother and a father, they all died within a week or a month, and the neighbor, his actual name was uh, Patrick John Sullivan. So the Sullivan family was killed, and the neighbor just took this three-year-old baby and raised it, and he became Monahan for the Monahan family. And when he was 12 years old, he was working for the, De the Des Moines um, Herald uh, just as a gopher, but he, 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 they thought he had talent. And the guy that was the art director there um, eventually opened an art school in Des Moines and when he was 17 years old, he then went into the art school on a scholarship, but he was the most beloved cartoonist in the newspaper at that time. And then uh, from there, he went to New York City with Muncie and was working for Muncie's newspapers and worked with Muncie again um, up until the 30s. P.J. Monahan, incredible. This is uh, C.D. Williams. And his specialty was making these romantic images. So again, you have uh, possibly this was a time when uh, the Argosy was appealing to both women and men. And so he did a series of work that have um, typical type of covers that would be on a, uh, uh, a woman's magazine at that time. And in fact, he was very successful. Um, but his, his, his great success was that um, he uh, was arrested when he was about 22 years old in New York City because um, this beautiful debutante was attacked by a kissing bandit who rushed up to her on her doorsteps and said, my God, you're beautiful, and gave her a big kiss. And she swooned, and her father came to the door, and he escaped. But from, from all accounts, they're pretty sure it was C.D. Williams that did this. And so he was arrested and spent six months in jail with this long, extensive trial. You can just imagine this guy rushing up to you and kissing you in the night, right? But it turns out he was, it was wrong. He was the founder of the uh, New York Society of Illustrators with Charles Dana Gibson and stuff, and they were all playing poker that night, and so he had a perfect alibi, and after this trial, they, they finally said, you know, oh, God, we're so sorry, you know. But he became the world's most notorious ladies' man, even though he's completely innocent of this crime. And 
So he, he went on to become very, very successful as doing romantic covers, like every woman's magazine wanted a picture of him. <laughs> Who knew? So this is Modest Stein. And he's very, very early, and he worked very, very late. He covers the, the whole spectrum of American publishing of, of practically the whole 20th century. And if, you, if you've ever heard his name, it's you've looked at a cover of a pulp and gone, God, this is pretty good. Who wrote, who did this? And you look, and he's got these uh, Modest Stein uh, in little block letters right down there. So you've probably seen it, but he's, he's you know, his most famous thing is so many uh, covers for um, Love Story, but he also did, you know, Doc Savage and um, The Shadow and everything, but he did everything. His story is very, very bizarre. He was actually born in Russia. Um, Fedya Aramstan was his name, and his, he lived with his nephew, I mean his cousin. He came to New York and settled in the Jewish ghetto. And um, their, their best friend was Emma Goldman, the anarchist. And um, the three of them entered into this bizarre love triangle. Um, and they decided to go out and foment revolution. And the, their big plan was to kill Henry Clay Frick, the um, steel industrialist who had such a terrible record of labor abuse. And so they, they tried to attack him when he was uh, leaving his carriage. And they shot, but only like skinned him. And uh, so um, Fedya Aramstan's uh, cousin was caught and arrested and went to jail for his whole life. Emma Goldman fled the United States to help with the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. And uh, he changed his name and lived in hiding as Modest Stein. And that's a true story. And when Emma Goldman was um, finally, her body was allowed to come back into the United States as the leader of the anarchist movement, um, she was buried um, in Illinois in a suburb of Chicago. And um, Modest Stein, for some reason, was commissioned to make her memorial plaque. So this is a great cover. It's just a classic one of Hopalong Cassidy. And I like this one, too. It's got everything you want. Mass bandits and Tarzan together. Uh, this is an interesting picture I want everyone to just take, take a minute to think about. Uh, this is a, a photograph of the art department at Muncie's. So there's uh, covers and illustrations up here. This is the secretary, and this is the assistant, and this is the actual guy responsible for everything we're talking about, Charles Howard Tate, C. Howard Tate. Um, he was a, a cartoonist in a newspaper, and Muncie and him just hit it off for some reason. And uh, he became the um, um, art director at Muncie Publications for 53 years. And so everything that we're looking at had to be get his approval. This is the only picture I could find of him. Uh, and uh, he's just a, he's, there actually is a look of Argosy. If you look at so many, as we've all done, and he's responsible for it because there's so many different artists, practically all the artists that we love worked for Argosy at some point. And yet there is a kind of an Argosy type cover, and this is the guy that created that. In a sense, he's the, uh, the real uh, director because he's telling them, oh, do this, do that. I love it, do more of that. So I was gonna look at a few of the pen and ink guys also. This is someone I really like, John R. Neal. 
Um, so here's like a, a science fiction image. It's like an airplane flying through space. It's a beautiful airplane that has a wing here and a wing here. And there's all this like heaven and dark nebula underneath them. He was a lifelong uh, newspaper artist. One of the things I found interesting in doing the research myself is that even though a guy like this did covers for decades in, I mean, illustrations for decades in Muncie Pulps, um, in actuality, they were producing many, many daily newspapers, <laughs> all by the same artist. And so this is a fraction of their output. So these early artists that we're looking at, the pulps were just a sideline where they made money. They, that was not their career. Um, it was just an extra way to make money. So the, the, you know, in these days, it was almost no affordable way to do um, uh, offset uh, photo gravure. It was, they could produce it, but it was too expensive. And it had to be reserved for the expensive industry of making um, $100 books and stuff. But the actual newspapers, everything was drawn by hand practically everything. And so newspapers had, you know, any one newspaper might have 12 different people have produced it. And remember there was like three and four and five and six editions a day, um, seven days a week. So there were literally all the artists in the United States for all intents and purposes were working for newspapers. So anyway, John Arneal, when he was in Philadelphia, he was in, uh, illustrating um, Frank, um, Bombs, The Wizard of Oz, and was, uh, they, they hit it off. And so he illustrated a lot of the Bomb books. And when Bomb died, and, uh, they, the, the publishers actually asked John Arneal to write them. And so he then wrote the last three Bomb books. They were like 40, 41, 42. But he was known for being able to handle fantasy scenes. So, some authors would produce things that were so wild, they would say, where do we get someone? They will get John Arneal. He can do this uh, exotic stuff. Here's another one of the pen and ink guys I wanted to look at, Samuel Kahane. Uh, he's born in utter poverty in Russia, came to the United States, and was um, a barefoot boy of 12, working outside of a saloon, doing a drawing of the sinking of the Maine in 1898, when um, that guy we looked at, C. Howard Tate, the art director, came out of the saloon and said, my goodness, this kid is talented, and hired him on the spot to become a uh, assistant illustrator. And he worked really for the rest of his life for Muncie. So these are great, these are just great. There's almost no way that we could ever get any of this stuff in art school. This is just true journeyman um, uh, pen and ink artists. And when he finally died in 1974, the New York Times said uh, Samuel Kahane died. He's the last of the great sketch artists, meaning the guys that you would just send over to a trial and would just draw uh, what was going on in the trial because cameras weren't allowed in, um, in courtrooms. All right, so here's another pen and ink guy. Uh, his name is Roger Morrison. But uh, whenever he would sign it, he felt his name was illegible. And so um, he just abbreviated to Maury, thinking that, that would be more legible. But instead, he just became known as Maury, period. That was it. 
And uh, he has a great style. It's distinctive and recognizable. It's the, and again, a lot of fantasy in his work. But they have a long, thin sort of character, which was probably stylish at one point to have the tall, thin man. But these are great compositions, you know, like we don't need the front of the boat. It's just beautiful with the clouds and this lines moving this way and that way and cutting everything up. It's just full of drama, really. And there's, a, there's also a playfulness and a cartoon quality in his work that I like. Okay, the horrible day finally came. Frank Muncy died, and um, remember he had $40 million. So um, what do most publishers do when that happens? Well, like this guy gave every employee $10,000 <laughs> in 1925. Can you imagine what that would, I mean, that's crazy. My dad in 1950 bought our house for $5,000. And so this is 1925. Everyone got $10,000. Can you, it's just, the guy should be in a, for like a saint, right? Who would do that? Well, 90% uh, of his money also went to the Museum of Modern Art. It was his other thing that he put all of his efforts into. So when talking about the artist that made Argosy, Frank Muncy made the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. At that time, it was insane that someone would give 40%, I mean, 70% um, of $40 million to a museum. There was just nothing like that had ever been done. But when, um, when that happened, he had his, uh, his business manager, William Thompson Dewart, uh, take over the thing. And Dewart introduced a new period. He was leaving all this moolah. And, uh, it was like a, it was not to say that it was become suddenly corporate, but he had lost the, um, um, this guy with his strange vision of, of uh, entertaining America on the cheap, but giving them what they want, but not, but finding a way through cleverness to make it available to them because it would be financially prohibitive. So he was kind of brilliant, but um, when Dewart came in, he was just trying to make it work. But part of the interesting thing, I thought, was that the, um, the will that Muncie left with, for his 40 million was that um, nothing should be sold on a large scale for eight years, that there should be a business plan where the uh, potential of uh, the company was not just fed to the vultures at, the, at, the, at a nickel on the dollar kind of thing. So Dewart's job was really to um, Keep the, keep the business running, keep it successful, and make it into a solid business. So he had a completely different um, um, agenda. Uh, so it's unlike a man who just suddenly takes over and starts thumping his chest. He took over and he had like this uh, uh, challenge to try and make it a profitable business in the next eight years and then sell it. I mean, whoever gets that kind of a, of a job, you know? So anyway. One of the people is Stockton Mulford, is from the new era. And he's not just a guy that worked in newspapers his whole life and then got a, a job. He's, he's, a, um, he was born out in um, uh, Oregon. And uh, he's an artist. He studied at art schools, and uh, he wanted to be an artist. And he's not really a, a lifelong employee. He, he wasn't like hired full time. 
He's a freelance guy. So he's bringing something different to the mixture during this um, Dewart period. So it's like a self-portrait uh, by a childhood accident when he was uh, six years old, he was blinded in, in one eye, his eye was uh, uh, broken out. And uh, in recovering um, with his head bandaged, uh, he fell in love with being an artist. And uh, he later illustrated um, other Tarzan stuff uh, for Liberty under the name Ray Dean and did um, illustrations for Adventure Magazine under the name Ray Dean. His best friend was Harry T. Fisk, who was another great illustrator. And he, Harry was always telling him that he should uh, go ahead and make the effort to, to be a, a freelance artist and uh, not to be financially afraid of it. Because if you didn't, if they didn't like your work, you were, you'd starve. There was no like uh, middle ground. So you either sold your work and could make money and get along, otherwise you were dead broke. And you, how long could you try to sell stuff before you had to go find a job? Here's another incredible artist. I love his work. It's very imaginative. I can't pronounce his name. I'll take any, uh, any advice anyone wants to give. Well, we got Griff? Grafe? <laughs> any Germans in the audience that would know? Griff? All right, Robert A. Griff. He uh, did children's books, and you can see there's, a, there's a, a friendliness and a fun quality about his work, I think. There's a heavy outline going on um, around everything, and that's, again, because he is really a pen and ink artist also. But um, he was born in Brooklyn, and oddly enough, very unusual, he inherited three inheritances in his lifetime. And so he was uh, totally financially set since he was a child. So he's doing this work um, out of a love of doing it, unlike any other artist, practically. He, uh, he does tons of work. It's in like Boy's Life. And he did children's books like Rip Van Winkle and Treasure Island. Now here's Paul Starr, who's like the number one artist that I associate uh, with Argosy. Um, he, he did have a, an annual contract, so he was in between being like a, a staff artist and a freelance guy. But he had the only artist I think of in history that had an annual contract that lasted for 10 years. So from 24 to 34, um, he was producing a large number of covers. I never counted them all, but it, it's, it's spectacular. And so you'd think with a guy that is just like, got a contract that he would start doing schlock or something, but I really don't think he does. This is just a brilliant cover. You see the poppy seeds and the, the opium pipe. <laughs> and you often see his slashing signature on his work, so you, you may be familiar with it. He could do anything, and he's one of the artists, uh, we saw his picture on the very first thing when we were setting it up, that actually got a profile in um, Argosy for the, the men who make Argosy. There are only, I think, five artists in the history of the magazine that got a profile, but most or many of the authors received very interesting profiles. They were like 80% accurate, um, but a certain amount of hyperbole. I mean, I love this cover. It's so funny, you would never think it's by him. I mean, it could be like an exciting movie poster for a, a gangland slaying thing nowadays, practically, but here it is. 
1935, this fantastic Devil Island. It's like Kong, you know, on Kong Island, but he's got this submachine gun in this middle age, from the middle ages, the, uh, like a feather in his hat and stuff. Where does the devil go to get feathers, you know? Like, is there a bird or something? I love this guy, Emmett Watson. He's just great. He's born in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And when he was 13 years old, he was working for an engraving company. And during uh, World War I, he was a cartographer uh, with his drawing skills and stuff in France and saw a lot of action. And um, some, he knew many famous heroes and stuff. So he illustrated books when, after the war of people um, that were uh, uh, from uh, their war experiences and stuff. Uh, if you, if, I don't know if you can all see the images well or not, but like, there's no contrast in this um, a prehistoric sort of dragon, which has wings also. So uh, it, it actually is all very pale tones, except that the hero himself is in more contrast. So that's actually pretty brilliant, a way of like uh, drawing the eye into different places. So here's this spectacular dinosaur. You'd think it would be like the most overwhelming thing, but in fact, it sort of recedes, and you're thinking about the drama of the guy. Because of his uh, masterful control of uh, contrast. Here you see this a sinister horde behind these two um, uh, explorers. And they're in um, uh, red and yellow type colors. And the background is all blue and green. And so the blue and green colors are kind of uh, what are called cool. They seem to recede. And the brilliant colors seem to jump out at you more. So again, this is not the sort of thing that you had previously seen at all. And so these are people that have studied art and gone to art school and um, are not just, um, uh, you know, worked in newspapers their whole life. They're actually producing art, I think. This is really great. It's like a, it's a purple-black sort of uh, raincoat with a beautiful purple uh, fire coming up in the back. This is like a typical movie poster thing we'll see today where there's a, a, a large face here. These are giant red and yellow flames in the back. And then a close-up of the character, but here's the actual uh, vehicle. So we're seeing um, three different planes of reality on top of each other, and yet it's not, it doesn't seem to be confusing or disoriented. It's just well-organized. So that's the kind of uh, a skill that Emmett Watson seemed to have invented. Now, his work before working for here and his work after working for Argosy is quite different. So I, I feel we have to give some, quite a bit of uh, credit to Charles Howard Tate again, because this is very much the look of the great, um, the, 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 the top stuff that Argosy was producing artistically, I think. Here you see, this is um, five years after the death of Muncie, and there's their advertising saying, um, we need, want new blood. And so this is Dewart at his finest saying, you know, I'm trying to pump this thing up because I've only three years left to sell it profitably. Uh, it's a very strange situation. But um, Argosy did go through some very strange things. All of America did too because of the Great Depression at that time. The publishing industry totally had to reinvent itself. But, oh, you know, over the next 10 years, uh, Argosy goes through a lot of bizarre things um, and Doug Ellis is going to tell you about it in terms of why they were doing this and that and everything. 
and multiplying, but doing all types of things to respond to the market. But here we have this, uh, um, um, like a relic of that struggle, saying we want new blood. One of the new bloods they got was uh, Rudy Bolarski. Now he seemed, he was just, uh, worked in a coal mine, born in DuPont, Pennsylvania, and um, got a correspondence art course, studied at Pratt, and then tried to become an illustrator. And if you look at the work that he's doing a few years before this, it's very crude. It's almost like stick figures compared to this. But this is under the influence, again, of C. Howard Tate and uh, Emmett Watson. Because you see, this is a very, very similar um, thing. We have the flames of red and yellow in the background, one large thing happening, and then, a, and then a smaller figures in the front. This is almost the exact same compositional formula as the Emmett Watson thing. But these are actually better. I don't know if you can see it in the back and stuff, but in the yellow, there's a, uh, a beautiful woman's face. And she has this neutral expression on her face. And in the front, you have these um, uh, sand hogs, I guess, that are uh, you know, riveting some steel in this very, very high, high contrast. And so the, the real power, though, is in this mysterious woman's face in the back. And so it's, it's an incredible composition. You have um, uh, these, these yellow and reddish type woman's face and these like heavy, black, contrasty, powerful figures in the foreground. Uh, it's just a great, great image, I think. I mean, I don't think it gets any better. Again, this is just such a great image of, a, of an adventure thing. A guy jumping barefoot, trying to just put on his pistol belt while he's pulling his parachute cord over a desert island, and he's wearing a foreign legionnaire's outfit. It's just completely over the top. But yet it seems real, and we think, I think I'll buy that and read that story, you know? So it's Rudy Bolarski incredibly coming into his own. Again, I love this, I love this cover so much. It's, you can't imagine a more dramatic scene. You've got these, these looming, towering, uh, I mean, this is about a block away from where Doc Savage lived. That's like 39th Street and 3rd Avenue, I recognize it. And, and here you see the bottom of a police vehicle. It's like going so fast, it's like flying off the curb. You see more of the bottom than the top. And this exotic woman's face, just there, placid. She doesn't have any expression on her face. It's like you know a Greek goddess or something. They have no expression on their face, like the Statue of Liberty. It's just a neutral expression. It's just so awesome, and it works so well with these oranges up here. And there's a little tiny uh, signature right there, Rudy Bolarski. Again, this is so cool. These hard hat divers in an Aztec underwater. And Tarzan, isn't that great? Rudy Bolarski. There's his little signature. Like, hey, I just noticed it. This is like a cheetah. It's normal. Normally, he doesn't wear the cheetah thing, right? Doesn't he usually? Just, it's like it's like a loincloth. It's brown, right? He's not like wearing a, a. I mean, Sheena of the Jungle wears the cheetah thing, or Betty Page, right? But that's, yeah. I don't know who these three guys in the back are, but there's Mr. Mystery and his uh, the Liberty Statue of Liberty's. Um, torch and the world in flames and this is only 38 though so we're about a year and a half away from the invasion of Poland I don't know can you see this image 
because from where I am, it looks all washed out. But does it really look good? This is the most incredible thing ever, practically, I think. Look, it's mad scientist. There's this like blue outer space thing, this incredible devil thing. You know, later he would do like the uh, Phantom Detective or uh, many, many thrilling detective type covers that have this big uh, ghost detective or something in here. But here's this, this, uh, this should be on a cover from a science fiction thing from the 50s or something, but it's an Argosy. So he taught at Pratt. Um, he then taught at um, the famous artist school, the Norman Rockwell School up in uh, Connecticut. And uh, he wound up doing a lot of paperbacks and a lot of um, men's adventure illustrations. So he's just great. He's not going to get better. From now on, it's downhill, guys. I just wanted to point this out. It's kind of fun that Argosy, in 35, is able to advertise in all of their millions and millions of newspapers. For only 10 cents, you could read this exciting news story coming up in the next Argosy. So the other publishers were competing with someone who was in a whole other world because they could run these ads for free and, and you know, hope to get some kind of uh, you know, purchases. Okay, VE Piles did great interiors, great strong um, um, cross-hatching type illustrations. And nevertheless, he does these covers that are extremely good too. So he's um, incredible. He's born in Kentucky. He fought in France. He was shot in the jaw by a German and uh, was recuperating. You can't quite see it, but he's missing that part of his jaw over there. And uh, he became interested in art while he was recuperating. And uh, the Army gave him a scholarship to the Chicago Art Institute. And from there, he uh, got a great career with Muncie and did, I guess, hundreds and hundreds of interiors. He's, he's completely different than the other artists and stuff, but he's using it. This is, in, is like a pale thing in the background with a strong figure in the front. Um, so again, you could see that he's, he's being influenced. So all of these characters doing sports in the back here are all just very, very pale things in the back. And you have a striking figure here, which is just a great composition. It, uh, this composition has probably been copied on two or three other pulps. And, and slick magazines use the same composition. Um, but again, that really shows that uh, V.E. Piles and Emmett Watson and uh, Rudy Bolarski were all uh, probably being instructed carefully by C. Howard Tate to come up with this sort of a composition, which is excellent. Here's our good friend George Rosen, born in Chicago and uh, had the humiliating experience of going to art school to be taught by his twin brother, Jerome Rosen. Uh, during the First World War, he was sent as a, um, to work for the Signal Corps, but instead of going uh, overseas, he became an instructor of the Signal Corps and was uh, stationed in Michigan. And um, when the, the pulps went dried up and he couldn't find any more work, he applied to the Army and said, do you want me to teach anywhere? And so they sent him to Dayton, Ohio, of all things, and he spent the last 10 years of his life teaching art at um, Riggs-Patterson, Wright-Patterson uh, Air Base in outside Dayton, Ohio, and um, could have known Rusty Hevelin, it's possible. I happen to love this cover. 
Again, I just want to show another little marketing deal, 1939. So uh, Dewart is late. He hasn't sold this stuff. He still can't find a buyer. This is more than, um, he was supposed to be selling it in 32, 33, but because of the, uh, the depression, he, they weren't find, he couldn't find a buyer. And so, uh, but here he's actually amplifying his thing because he buys the story, he runs it in, in his thing, and then he can also run it in the newspapers through um, a syndicate mentioning Argosy. And if you want, here's another picture of Lester Dent. If you're all keeping those copies of those pictures of Lester Dent. Marshall France, born in Russia, went to the Philadelphia Museum School of Art. Now he has, a, a, again, a distinctive style. It's very detailed. There's almost no drama going on. Um, they're, they're, they're quiet almost, comparatively. You see how the, uh, the vultures in the back are like pale? And these guys have an outline around them and stuff. It's, it's Marshall France doing what C. Howard Tate wants him to do, but it's not natural to him. Because this is more like his actual style. It's just a very meticulous, realistic style, uh, which is very beautiful. It has almost like a filigree kind of quality. Um, but maybe uh, it was old fashioned or something. I don't know why, you know, he wanted him to uh, do more postery type things, but that's not what he really wanted to do. And he went on and became, um, moved to Hollywood also and did film posters like uh, Small. This is a bizarre book that came out um, describing the details of Muncie's will, just to show you, you know, uh, how, how important he was actually in the culture, even after he had died. So he, he wanted it to be sold until he could sell it at a good price. He realized that his newspapers and other property might bring uh, far less than their actual value if they were sold immediately after his death. That's just a weird thing. So uh, this is one of the weird things that happened is it ran for a while with just this graphic cover. Um, they just switched, they stopped doing it, even though they, they had this great history. And this was another kind of uh, uh, film reel kind of uh, cover they had with just a, a medley of scenes from around the world, it, but they were photographs instead of having an artist draw them. And this is the last phase of covers that um, uh, Dewart had during his control. And they went back to their old friend Samuel Kahane, the, the barefoot boy with the sinking of Maine outside the, the streets. And he did these uh, just simple pen and ink covers. Now he, he always worked as a, as a employee, not as a freelance artist. So these would actually just be on his desk, do it, get it done, and he wouldn't even receive extra money or anything for these covers. So these are just uh, pen and inks that he would do, and then the graphic people were adding the other colors when they were doing the color separation. But during this same phase, uh, they hooked up with Virgil Finley. He was born in upstate New York and was completely self-taught, I believe. And as a kid, he sent in his stuff to uh, Weird Tales. And they said, yeah, we'll print this. And uh, uh, you know, he was just getting a pittance. But he had this great uh, portfolio he put together. And with that portfolio, he was able to get these jobs that probably paid very, very little, doing covers for Argosy. He uh, actually had a. Uh, during the Second World War, he went to Okinawa as the Army Corps of Engineers and saw a lot of action and stuff. But yet he came back and uh, 
had a, a splendid career in the late 40s and the post-war period and produced even better work, you know. Here's H.J. Ward, who's also from Philadelphia. He also went to the um, Philadelphia Museum Art School that uh, Marshall France went to. And he typically works for um, Trojan magazines at that time. So it's, it's, there's, there's some complication of why he would be there. He did this one earlier cover for them, but uh, the last few painted covers are these um, H.J. Ward covers that are very flamboyant and very um, action-packed. He's really an expressionist painter. Now the price is up to 15 cents for some reason. The format is much larger and thin, and they're, they're using a kind of a newsprint type paper inside. It's not yet a slick magazine, but it's more like a, uh, the format of like true romances or something. But you have to wonder what's going on because there's like um, a sexy woman, a guy with a dagger, and this is almost like a cover for you know, spicy adventure stories. So this is what's going on. Um, the paper was sold to Harry Steger. Um, in the, the fall of 1948. Though Steger um, was a uh, somewhat privileged, wealthy, smart guy, um, and uh, you know went to private schools in New York. Um, I think, did he go to Princeton? But uh, anyway, he was, he was uh, a prince in some respects. And um, he was very happy to be able to say that he was uh, producing a, a magazine that was founded in 1882, because uh, that's the perfect kind of thing he was aspiring to. This is a fan letter that someone wrote to him saying, whatever happened, wrote to Muncie saying, what happened to uh, cowboy movie thrillers? And they say that, uh, oh well, um, starting in January 43, uh, everything we're doing will be published by Popular. So I thought it's interesting. It's, it's signed by Nora M. Spillane. I thought that was pretty interesting too. It's like, how many Spillanes were there in uh, fiction publishing at that time, you know? Could this be his mom or something? I don't know. Anyone know? Nora Spillane. So this is the first cover that's got, uh, it's the 60th anniversary, so that's how far we've come. Popular publications in the corner. The cover's by Peter Stevens. Here's Rafael de Soto. And so he was born in Puerto Rico and came to the United States when he was 19 years old and started doing pen and inks for uh, Street and Smith. And of course, we all know and love his work from The Spider and uh, Dime Mystery and stuff. So he was a big artist for Popular. And uh, at this point, the magazine is becoming uh, a slick magazine. This gossip columnist points out at the end of 43 that it's now officially a slick magazine, which means it's using clay-coated paper inside and is able to reproduce with full, uh, full color, off color litho insides instead of using pulp paper insides. So one of the, the guys they got, um, DeSoto came to pulp conventions, but I don't know if he was ever a guest of honor, but uh, the guy they got was uh, to do covers at this point was an ex-pulp artist, Ernest Chariaca, who had put in um, a good, um, oh, five years doing great, exciting pulp covers for popular publications. But at this point, he's made his way up to um, Collier's, Saturday Evening Post, and uh, Esquire magazine. He was a very famous romance and pinup artist. And so 
it was like a Steger could call up his old pal who had been a pulp artist doing stuff for uh, 50 bucks a cover and say, hey, you know, he's now getting $8,000 for a cover of uh, Good Housekeeping or something. And he'd say, would you do a cover for Argosy magazine? And they would give him a probably good price. <coughs> so he's a slick magazine illustrator, but he's from, and he was a guest of honor at a pulp convention, actually. And his work is fantastic, you know. He's Greek, he's uh, taught in New York City, he worked in sign uh, painting um, when he started out. And he, he eventually he did like the, the poster for The Robe and um, uh, worked for Hollywood movies also and uh, very, very, very successful financially and, and artistically. Here's another guest of honor, Walter M. Baumhofer. This was uh, uh, Steger's favorite artist that he ever worked with. And um, the, the, the Argosy at this point is practically entirely photographs, uh, but also if they have artwork, it's very modern graphic type artwork. It's, there's no, no real pulp covers anymore. And so Baumhofer's one of the last, so it was kind of like they were very close friends and there was, he was doing these jobs and you know getting a decent, I think he got 750 bucks for these covers. But it was, was like the last guy to do covers because the, all magazines on the newsstands at this point uh, had photo covers. It was very, very unpopular to have a, a pulp type cover or something. It didn't, it didn't help sales at all. He was born in Brooklyn, studied at Pratt. And um, you, of course, he did the covers for so many dime, mystery dime, detective dime, Western, and also Doc Savage covers. But he was a hell of a nice guy. And one of his best friends was Norman Saunders, my pop. And uh, so dad was doing Argosy, but only interiors. Uh, and this, at this point there in the 60s is when dad did work with him. Like, so he's still happy. They're using uh, two-tone reproductions inside. He's very grateful to have the work because uh, by this time, uh, the illustrators were all out of work. There was just no illustration work for this type of illustration. There were new people doing new types of work that uh, but there was just none of this stuff. It was, these are the, la the remnant of the pulps at um, Argosy. This is like a two plate deal. Oh, in case you don't know, dad was born in Minnesota. Uh, he was blinded in one eye as a child also, and um, also fell in love with art while recuperating. This is like a weird thing. If you want an artist for your children, just get an ice pick. Um, he went to uh, Correspondence Art School and then worked for Fawcett's. Worked with uh, Steger and all the publishers in the 30s. And, uh, but he went on to become, uh, in our lifetime, uh, do all types of paperback comic covers and um, men's adventure magazines and also the, uh, all the bubblegum cards, like all the, the excitingly painted ones. So like Mars Attacks, Batman, all that stuff, Wacky Packs. Oddly enough, in 1974, Norman Rockwell finally made it to the cover of Argosy. <laughs> but you'll notice it's a photograph because they, they framed the painting, which was an article about John Wayne. They framed it with a brass label, put it on the wall, and then photographed the wall. 
like they need to make it a photograph. It couldn't just be an artwork. You're like, what is wrong with these people, right? Like they hated it so much. So after um, 200 and, no, 321 covers for Saturday Evening Post, Norman Rockwell was fired in 1963. And he was considered the most beloved artist in the United States, but also the most out of date. And so there was just no use for illustrators. And so uh, Steger getting him to do this is, is again, a kind of a cool thing. But no talk about Argosy would be complete without another of our guest of honors, Jim Starenko. So when the, the Argosy went back and was republished in the 9091, uh, Jim Starenko, of Ukrainian ancestry and born in Reading, Pennsylvania, a self-taught artist that worked for Marvel in the 60s and wrote the history of comics in 1972, uh, did these pretty cool covers based on the pulp history for Argosy, and he's very proud of them. And I hope some, all of you were lucky enough to meet him when he's been a guest of honor here. And I am now done. You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2016.